Okay, my name is Joe Kretschmar. As you can see, I thought I'd start with some disclosures. I'm a gastroenterologist in Greenville, Tennessee with Tacoma Medical Associates, but most importantly, and this is something that's very important to me, I'm actually a servant of Jesus Christ and want to be, have that clear to all my patients when they come to me that that is very important to me. So before we start any further, let's bow our heads for prayer. Father in heaven, we pray that at this time you may be lifted up, that everything that is said here may be to your honor and glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I, start, I thought I'd start with a patient encounter. This is a 60-year-old lady who was overweight, which is not uncommon in where I'm coming from. Very nice-looking lady, very pleasant very intelligent, but she had abdominal pain. That's something I see a lot as a gastroenterologist. She had abnormal liver enzymes, which is fairly common. She, she was over 50 and she'd not had a screening colonoscopy. She had aches and pains and constipation and no energy and she didn't have the energy to finish her day at work every day and that really distressed her and she just had multiple complaints along those lines. So, being a gastroenterologist, we discussed what to do about this. Uh, we ordered some tests to find out what's going on with her liver. I thought it was probably gonna be fatty liver, but we needed to make sure it wasn't some other issues. Decided to look in her stomach and a colon do an ultrasound and then we discussed what to do for her symptoms. I said, would you like to hear some things you can do in the meantime while we set these things up, things you can do to try to minimize these symptoms and so you can get some help with what's bothering you. So I presented to her something that I've been presenting to many of my patients. And so I told her right up front, I said, you know, I'm going to try to persuade you or convince you. And they look at me and they kind of look strange. I said, I'm going to try to convince you. And so I may or may not succeed, but let me see if I can try. So I start with this. Okay, would you agree with me that every machine you can think of runs on fuel? I go, yeah. Would you agree that it's going to run best if it runs on the fuel it's designed to run on rather than you, you decide you're going to put whatever you jolly well want to in there. I had one patient tell me, you know, in my chainsaw I'm supposed to have gas and oil mixture. I just put straight gas in it and burned the thing up. Well, they agree. Okay. Next question I asked him, would you agree with me that when you swallow, once you swallow, whatever you eat or drink, for your body at that time, that's going to be your fuel. I go, yeah. So I say, okay, so what's the best fuel for humans? I said, you can read 10 different books and probably get 12 different answers. So what's the best fuel? I said, and, you know, I came across a simple concept. I told them I tend to like simple ideas. So this is the concept I came across. The concept was the way to know if a food is good for you is Whatever food has the most nutrition in it and the fewest harmful substances in it per calorie, that's the best food. So what food is it? I said, actually, we know the answer. It's all been studied and published in medical literature. We know the answer. The most nutritious food turns out to be the foods that grew from the earth. Greens and vegetables, fruits, beans, whole grains, nuts and seeds, unless, and I told him it's a very big unless, unless you take that very food and you put it through a factory. Once it comes out the other end, they've been processing it, so they've been taking out nutrition, putting additives in, which aren't good for you, as a general rule. So when it comes out the other end, it's not good for you anymore, it's good for the factory owner. And they said, well, I said, and then there is another concept. The same principle applies. If you take foods that grew from the earth, and you feed it to an animal, by the time you eat the animal, you've lost nutrition compared to where you started from. Plus, if you think about it, 
that animal, as it's living, gets exposed to who knows what. It could be heavy metals, pesticides, radiation, fungus, bacteria, viruses, antibody. I mean, and she's nodding her head by this time, said, so not only have you lost nutrition, you've added toxins, so it's not near and that animal or even what the animal produces. We're talking about the dairy, the milk, the cheese, the eggs, that type of thing. Not as good as what grew from the earth originally. So she goes, yeah, I think I see what you're saying. So basically what I told her, I'm trying to suggest what you want to eat is the food as close as you can to how it grew from the earth. But then I said to her, may I now share with you what persuades me personally that this is the best way to eat but it's my personal opinion may I share that with you you know they'll let you share with you do you know if you ask that they'll let you share they're at the doctor's office what they can do is tell the doctor no I don't want you to share what your opinion is they're not going to say that to you they actually let you so I said okay but now in the interest of full disclosure I have to tell you I believe we have a God who created us and where I'm working in East Tennessee, a lot of people believe that, so that's actually kind of nice. But he said, and you know what else? He actually loves us. I happen to think that is way cool. He actually loves us. He wants us to be in good health, and he gave us his word, the Bible, to instruct us. So she goes, yeah, I see that. So, okay, from that perspective, see if this makes sense. When God made our very first parents, Adam and Eve, he put them in the perfect ideal location, Garden of Eden. And if you read the very first chapter in the Bible, in Genesis 1, verse 29, he actually tells us what he gave them to eat. It was fruits, grains, nuts, seeds, and the tree of life. That's actually pretty cool. That was a very important thing. They got to eat the tree of life. But then they sinned. You read about that in chapter 3 of Genesis. And so God put them out of the Garden of Eden. Why do that? Was he just trying to be mean? No. He didn't want them continuing to eat from the tree of life and living in more lives of sinners. So she understood that. So I said, okay. So basically in chapter 3, God's telling their consequences. Yes, you're going to die. You're going to earn your keep from the sweat of your brow. That means you're going to work. You're going to have thorns and thistles in your life. That means you're going to have difficulties. You're going to have pain with your children. But he also said, now you're going to eat the plant of the field. So what does that mean? What that means is you're not just going to eat what the plant produces. All they had to go around initially was just eating stuff off plants. That's all they had to do. But now he says, you're also going to now eat the plant itself. So for example, what do we eat that are roots? Things like potatoes and beets and onions and carrots, right? What do we eat that are stems? Things like asparagus and broccoli and Brussels sprouts, right? All that type of stuff. What do we are leaves? Well, that's all the greens from the salads, that type of thing. So she got the idea. Yeah, I understand that. He says, so basically what we're saying is, that's what they got to eat at that time. And eating that way at that time, people were living 900 plus years. But here's where a problem came in. They start to turn their back on and reject God. I said, can you imagine giving someone who has rejected God 900 plus years to live? You know, someone like Hitler or Stalin, I said, you name the bad guy, you know. They go, wow, it's really bad, yeah. Well, it was. That's why the flood came. Now, after the flood, God knows people can't handle living 900 plus years. They get into way too much mischief. It just, they can't handle it. I'm telling her all this. And he said, God also knew that there's a biblical principle. The principle is, if you kill, you are killed. And that principle kicked in. Because it was after the flood that God first gave man permission to start eating some animals and animal products. So every time you kill an animal and eat it, it actually kills you a little bit and shortens your life. And I said, we don't live 900 plus years anymore, do we? She said, no, we don't. But however, once you, if you fast forward, the earth may new, there'll be no more death or dying. So back to eating God's original diet. So I said, that was just all preamble, so you know what to eat. So the first thing you have to, thing you have to remember is, okay, Eating animals, in other words, meat, or animal product, what they produce, was something that God allowed us to eat after the flood, in part to shorten our lives, so no thank you, we're going to pass on all that stuff. Now, what we're supposed to eat, all you have to do is remember a concept that when I came across it, I thought, man, this is brilliant. So are you ready? Here's what I figured out. See if you think I'm brilliant. Here's what I figured out. 
God's smarter than I am. Is that brilliant? They're looking at me, well, duh. Of course he's smarter. But I said, if you really believe that, it actually makes a difference in what you're going to eat. Because if you believe God's actually smarter than you are, what you're going to do is you're going to eat the food as close as you can to how he made it, rather than try to process it to something that we do, and we mess the thing up. So basically, if you remember that, so I said, as an example, have a choice between corn or corn chip. They go, well, which, what should you eat? I ask her that. She says, well, corn. Well, how about between, say, Cheerios or oatmeal? Well, oatmeal, she says. Okay, okay, how about orange or orange juice? Well, orange. I mean, okay, I, one more I said. Frozen vegetables or canned vegetables? And they go, hmm, I, if I do the canning, maybe the can, but most of the time probably they haven't done as much to frozen, so maybe frozen. So she's getting the idea. Okay, so I said, now I have one that's silly. I'm telling you up front, this is silly, okay? What did God give Adam and Eve to drink in the Garden of Eden? Was it Mountain Dew or water? And they go, okay, that's silly. I mean, no, but water, obviously. And then I said, okay, if you want sweets, how does God package sweets? I told her, fruit. Some say honey. I go, well, last I checked, bees aren't plants. They aren't. They're animals. So basically, how does God package sweets? fruit. So basically, that's the principle. Eat the food as close as you can to how he made it. Now, she was receptive to all this, and she was kind of sitting there with a kind of a shocked look on her face, but she's thinking, and I said, did you know this actually works? Now, it doesn't work because I said so. Remember, we decided he's smarter than I, right? So I said, can I read you a Bible verse? She's going, okay, let me let you read, have you read me a Bible verse. So I said, look, first, let me give you a little background about the Bible. There's a lot of people that don't really know that much about the Bible. So I had to give a little bit of background. Remember, there was Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and they were all men of God, and God had communicated with them, and they had a lot of knowledge about what to do. But Jacob had 12 sons, and one of the sons was Joseph, and brothers got jealous of him, sold him off to slavery in Egypt, lost track of him. Well, God didn't lose track of him. He eventually became prime minister, and there was a famine that was predicted. And so his sons, his family came down to check it out. He tested them, found out they're good guys, so he calls the whole family out, down, and they live happily ever after until that whole generation dies, and that, whole, that pharaoh dies, it comes a whole new pharaoh, and he goes, who are these people? They're multiplying like rabbits. They're going to take over my country. I'm going to make them slaves. So he makes them slaves. So I'm telling her all this. Now, they're slaves for a couple hundred years or so, and while you're slaves, you have a lot of rights to do whatever you want? Not so much. So they lose the knowledge of what they should be doing and what shouldn't be doing. So I'm telling her all this. And basically, they do remember enough to call on the Lord, and they call on the Lord, and the Lord raises up Moses, and Moses <coughs> comes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go, and he goes, uh-uh, so they have plague number one. So he comes back to Pharaoh, let my people go, and he goes, uh-uh, so they have plague number two. Let my people go. Uh-uh, plague number three. Finally, on the tenth plague, he goes, I get it. They can go. <laughs> so they go up, they're against the Red Sea, and Pharaoh goes, what was I thinking? I'm going to go after him. So he goes after him, but Moses, God opens the Red Sea, and Pharaoh goes, I'm going to go after him. That was a really bad idea because the water falling on the foot into Pharaoh. But now God has all these people in the wilderness who've been slaves, who don't know what they should be doing, and... God's having to instruct them. So through Moses, he's instructing them. So I said, let me give you one more bit of information before I read you the verse. And the bit of information is, people from our age have found mummies of Egyptians from that general time period, put them through scanners, and documented many of those people suffered from many of the same diseases we suffer from today. You know, the arthritis, the stroke, the cancer, you know, different things, because they were eating and living like we do today. So I said, okay, with that, in mind, let me read you the verse. And so I pull out my phone. Hopefully it doesn't go off. And I read it's Exodus 15, 26. So I show it to them as I show it to her as I'm reading. I says, here's Moses talking to children of Israel. So he's teaching them. He says, if thou wilt diligently hearken to the voice of the Lord thy God. So I say, what does diligently hearken mean? That means really, really pay attention and listen, right? And we'll do that which is right in his sight. So I said, you have to more than listen. You have to actually do it. You have to listen and do. Now he's going to say it again. 
and will give ear to his commandments. What does that mean again? Listen, right? He goes, yeah, listen. And keep all his statutes. What does that mean? Do it. Do what he says you to do. Then here's the promise. I'll put none of these diseases upon thee, which I have brought upon the Egyptians, for I am the Lord that healeth thee. And you know, I says, that's not me. I said, I, one of the things I figured out is I'm not all that smart. But I know someone who is really smart. Listen to him. Because that's what I'm pointing to. Eat the food as close as you can to how he made it. So she goes, I get it. Well, we had these tests and procedures and so forth. I didn't see her for about a month. And I'll tell you the rest about her story later. So first of all, let me start the talk. It's time for me to get my talk started. So what's the outline here? First of all, what is truth? We're going to answer that here tonight. What's truth? How do we apply the information, how do we apply truth to medical information and look at some of the top GI papers according to American College of Physicians and how to incorporate God into patient encounters? Because that to me is, is really all that every encounter should be all about. So what is truth? Actually, we have an advantage. I mean, a lot of people say, what is truth? Well, actually, we know. What is truth? We have it from the Bible. If we do believe that God is truth. He's given us three definitions here. In four, John 14, 6, who is speaking here? It's Jesus. He says, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one cometh to the Father but by me. So anything to do with Jesus is truth. What's the second one here? John 17, 17. That's Jesus's, we call it, high priestly prayer. Sanctify them through, sanctify them through thy truth. What does he define truth as? Thy Word is truth. So what is the word? Well, we know it's Jesus from John 1, but we also know it's God's word, the Bible. So that is truth, right? And then Psalm 19, 151. Thou art near, O Lord, and all thy what? Commandments are truth. So what, is, what are God's commandments? They're an expression of his character. So basically, we're back to God is truth. So basically, what does, how does that, how do we apply this? How do we, do we really believe it is truth? How do we learn about it? We have to actually immerse ourselves in him. And that's a point that I think I've heard brought out this weekend in multiple talks. You have to have that relationship with him. If you don't have that, you won't have anything to share. And it's all about him and the truth is completely his. So we filter everything through him. And how was God's word? written, it was through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And if we believe that the spirit of prophecy was inspired by the same spirit, then I think there's truth in those writings as well. So we know the truth by studying the genuine. And what is the genuine? The Bible, the spirit of prophecy. So here's a very famous statement from the Ministry of Healing, page 127. Here's the health principles, pure air, sunlight, abstentiousness, and by the way, abstentiousness is basically be moderate, isn't it? Rest, exercise, proper diet, use of water, trust in divine power, and these are something that I think they made the acronym New Start, but these are the true remedies, and every person should have a knowledge of them, and it's essential to understand the principles involved for treating the sick. I think that is a given. So, back to what we were saying. We study the genuine, which is the Bible and the spirit of prophecy. And there's a couple acronyms I mentioned, New Start and Creation. But here's a very easy, easy way of knowing what is truth and how to treat a patient. So here's basically medical school in two sentences. You basically find out what are people doing that they shouldn't be doing. And we'll stop that. And what should they be doing that they're not doing? Well, start that. I mean, really, that is it. It's amazing. If you, you have to actually listen to them, but that actually, there's a lot of truth to that. Just do that. It's amazing. Now, I, brought, I put this slide up because these are some of the sites I have used, and I specifically want to underline this one here, nutritionfacts.org. I saw that Dr. Nedley is going to have Michael Greger as one of his speakers, and I believe that man is... Put, done an amazing, amazing work because he reviews all the medical literature on nutrition and puts it in little vignettes. And I don't think he knows he's doing this, but to a very great degree, what he's documenting is that the best diet for humans turns out to be the one that God gave us, gave man, originally. 
and he's giving the scientific background. So if someone questions you, that's a good source to start with, to look for whether the information is out there. And he puts the latest up there. So I just wanted to make sure I underlined that. And specifically because I'm going to have several slides in this presentation that are drawn from this particular site. And so I'll point that out when I get to them. But the work is just brilliant. I really want to recommend it. So here's a way to look at the medical literature. If it agrees from the principles of God's word, then I think we should probably accept it. If it disagrees, does God's word need work? I remember going to a presentation once where someone presented, you know, we looked over the principles from the spirit of prophecy and 95% of it was correct. And I'm thinking, what's wrong with this picture? Was God wrong 5% of the time? I'm thinking science was off on that part. Anyway, but that's, that just struck me. So let me get into this part. The American College Physician Top GI Studies for 2014. And here's a couple guys who reviewed all the medical literature and published an article in Archives of Internal Medicine. So who are these guys? John Allen was the president of the American Gastroenterology Association, and he's from Yale University. And David Weinberg was chief of GI at Temple Health Fox's Chase Cancer Center in Philadelphia. So I'm going to review the part of the information that they thought was important, but then make a comment on each, okay? So the first point they made was about eosinophilic esophagitis, and basically the point they made is it's fairly common. 400,000 Americans in looking at about 75 million men and women under the age of 65. It was found in almost half a million people. And what is it? It's allergic esophagitis, and it's an allergic inflammatory condition that involves the eosinophils, and it leads to people feeling like food gets stuck in the esophagus. And I've had people come in, and they can't pass the food, and generally they call me in the middle of the night from the emergency room. It seems like if the patient gets it stuck at 6, they'll come in the ER at 8, and the ER will work on them till about midnight, then they'll call me. <laughs> um, but we need to try to open that up. So how do we diagnose it? We look in there, and you can't find a stricture. But you do a biopsy, and then microscopically, they'll find there's a lot of allergic cells in there, and it's treated by fluticasone. Oops, I went. There we go. Um, the fluticasone, which is a steroid inhaler, but you're not supposed to actually inhale it. You're supposed to swallow it. Or it can be treated by elimination diet. And here's specifically the elimination diet that people can be allergic to, milk proteins, soy, nuts, eggs, wheat, and seafood. And you know, my comment is I'm back to the idea God's smarter than I am. And so as a general rule, it seems like if we follow the diet he originally set up for us, many times if you get rid of the foods that are specifically better to avoid, like the dairy, the eggs, the seafood, it may be you may not be allergic to some of these other things. So that's, I still suggest listening most closely to God, but this is the elimination diet. So I had a railroad worker who came to my office and he had food had gotten stuck, so he came for follow-up after we got it out of the esophagus in the middle of the night one time. And the biopsy showed it was eosinophilic esophagitis, and we discussed diet versus medication. So I gave him the medication, but I also talked to him about the diet. He said, well, you know, I'm laying track. And the railroad people make the lunch for me, so it's hard for me to control. I says, well, you know, it takes effort. You actually have to do some planning. So he says he'd try it, and, you know, he came back one time, and he said, you know, that medicine, I just don't like that medicine. I made some of the changes you talked about, and I'm not having that problem anymore. And we just heard in our last presentation, you can't just go by results, but I'm still, I'm convinced if you listen to and follow what God does, he has a blessing. He promised that. Now let's talk about the next subject they brought up, Barrett's esophagus. And here what they're saying is, people with Barrett's and low-grade dysplasia, if you do an ablation, it's just, it's, a little bit better than just taking biopsies periodically. That's what endoscopic surveillance is. So what is Barrett's? For those of you who aren't gastroenterologists and don't look down people's esophagus all the time, this is actually what it looks like. This is normal lining of the esophagus, and this is lining of the stomach creeping up the esophagus. So if you see this, this shouldn't be there. 
and so you do biopsies and what you don't want to have happen is have it become a cancer. And here's some slides from, uh, I was talking about Michael Greger's work in nutritionfacts.org, but basically esophageal cancer has increased dramatically as you can see, it's increased sixfold and even a greater extent than melanoma or breast or prostate cancer. So with radiofrequency ablation, you can get the Barrett's to disappear, but some of these cells may still be below the lining that you can't see, so you still have to sample the esophagus periodically. But here is another way of approaching the treatment. Here they chose to give a preparation of basically strawberries, and what they found was that helped get rid of some of the lesions. So it's an alternative treatment. And here's their summary. It decreased the histologic grade of the precancerous esophageal lesion. So the point I'm making with this slide is there are treatments out there just by following what God suggested we eat. That can help fix things. One of the things I've discovered about the way God works is it tends to be a package deal. I'll underline that again in the next few slides, but when the side effect of following the type of diet and lifestyle God recommends is it fixes all sorts of things. I kind of like that. So here's another study suggesting that you want to have all these antioxidants from all of these fruits and vegetables, and here's the different types of ones that you can get different ones that just get a whole variety of the foods that God made for us to eat. Now, Here's their next point on chronic pancreatitis. Patients with chronic pancreatitis had increased cancer mortality. Well, that makes sense. Chronic pancreatitis is a really bad disease. And you have an increased risk for cancer, diabetes, ulcer, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, and kidney disease, and even stroke. Well, it seems like the things that led you to have chronic pancreatitis tend to be the type of lifestyle decisions that make you at higher risk for these other things. So I don't think that's adding a whole lot of information. Just what they're telling you by giving you all this is watch for these other things. And that's not even including the idea of tobacco and alcohol, which are major players in causing pancreatitis. So as you can see, these chronic pancreatitis is associated with many diseases. So the idea is you should stop tobacco and alcohol, and lifestyle may affect many of these diseases. We know about that. So how do we avoid chronic pancreatitis, which can lead to chronic to, to pancreatic cancer? And here's one of the things I thought was interesting. The idea of fat, but it was mostly from animal sources, not from plant sources that you tended to get the pancreatic cancer. Okay, their next point about colon cancer detection. And this is one that actually kind of indicts those of us who do colonoscopies. They said that if you're having your colonoscopies at a regular basis, when you should, and between time they found you, got, you had cancer, well, the reason was you either missed it, it wasn't removed, or you didn't biopsy the right thing. Well, generally, you're going to try to remove it rather than just biopsy. So what's the comment on that? Well, they already they have, as you can imagine, um, standards that those of us who do colonoscopy should be meeting high ad adenoma detection rates. In other words, if you look at a number of different people who are doing colonoscopies, and some people find a whole lot more polyps than others, and they're all in the same group practice, something's not right. So that's one of the ways you need to might do some remedial work of why you're not finding as much. And this may have to do with how long it takes you once you get to the cecum to come back, how good your prep is. You need to comment on that in your report. You need to have good equipment. And you also need to be doing this more than just once every three or four weeks. You probably should be doing it regularly so you know what to look for. But basically, here's what I think the take-home message. Whatever you do, do it heartily as the Lord unto men. So who are you doing it for, really? To glorify God, not just to get done, to get more and more procedures. That's, that's I think, the take-home message here. So here's their next one. Stool DNA testing can detect advanced precancerous lesions in colorectal cancer, but it costs a lot and specificity is reduced. Well, the 
comment from this is, do we want to wait until someone has cancer before we find it? Colon cancer is actually a preventable disease. That's kind of, kind of really good news. And here's one of the things they looked at. They're looking at the diet of African-American, Caucasian-Americans versus native Africans. And why is it that blacks here in America have a lot higher incidence of colon cancer than the ones in Africa? So they looked at that and they initially thought it was fiber. But now they're saying, you know, they are eating as low a fiber in Africa as we are here in America. What's the difference? Its amount of meat and animal fat consumption was much lower. And that seems to be the biggest issue in developing colon cancer. In fact, so here's the conclusion from this one is, it's the animal product consumption, not fiber. Remember we had that idea from the, uh, uh, just from what the Bible told us, when man started eating animal products, that's what shortened our lives, and it's still true. And here's, like I was saying, it really is a package deal. And I think that's just, it's just an amazing evidence of just how wonderful a God we serve. Because they don't know, well, what is it? Is it the animal fat? Is it the cholesterol? Is it the protein? Well, actually, it may be just a combination of all three, because the diet that has this rich in one is rich in all of them. And so basically, you want to stay away from all that stuff. And the way you do it is by eating the diet the way God designed us to eat. Uh, next point here is inflammatory bowel disease and cancer. Patients with inflammatory bowel disease were found of overall risk, increased risk of cancer. However, the risk of gastrointestinal cancer decreased over the past decade, decade while non-gastrointestinal cancer remained stable. So basically, if you have inflammatory bowel disease, your risk of cancer is increasing. That's what they're noting. So, why are we getting inflammatory bowel disease? And here they're talking about high protein intake from, it's getting repetitious, isn't it? There seems to be a common theme, are you noticing? Animal protein, that's what seems to be one of the risks. So again, inflammatory bowel disease appears to be preventable and to a great degree it's because of diet. So what has changed? Well. They looked at the experience of Japan, and there seems to be a lot increased incidence of Crohn's disease compared to how it used to be. Now, did the genes of the Japanese people change since World War II? Was that what happened? What well, changes? They became westernized. They started eating like we do. And by the way, here's the other side. The people that ate the most vegetable protein had decreased incidence of inflammatory bowel disease. So it's not the protein, it's where the protein is coming from. It's again a package deal, where it's coming from. And here's another slide that documents that high protein intake and plant protein was restricted to animal protein. And here's, a, they talked about, well, what's happened since World War II? This happened both in Japan and in Belgium. They had a marked increase in meat consumption and that may explain some of the increased risk of inflammatory bowel disease since World War II. So a diet high in protein, particularly animal protein, increased inflammatory bowel disease. And why is this? Well, turns out if you eat a lot of animal protein, you increase because some of the end products of colonic microflora, which is the bacteria in the colon, such as hydrogen sulfide, are toxic to the colon, and this can affect even which mix of bacteria you have and how they respond with inflammation. And chronic inflammation, we've already heard that in some other talks earlier today, can lead to increased disease, which is increased inflammatory bowel disease. In fact, there's even evidence suggesting that sulfur compounds can be a source of ulcerative colitis. And this tends to be most concentrated in the rectum because that's where the end product of what happens earlier in the colon, it gets changed down into the rectum and that's where people get the first manifestations of ulcerative colitis. So the microflora of the colon elaborate toxic products from food that have hydrogen sulfide, which are the 
foods from animals like eggs and meat and so forth, and that leads to inflammatory bowel disease. So I guess we've already basically made that point. Now, hepatitis C. That was another, this is now, as you can see, it was an article written early this year, and hepatitis C has been changing dramatically. I can remember when I first started, it was a disease that was difficult to treat. People would take shots three times a week for a year, and you get maybe 10 to 15% people cured of the ones that could tolerate it. And they're saying it may become rare, but here's a key sentence. Cost-effectiveness was not evaluated. Those of you who are at all treating any patients with hepatitis C know the cost of the medication is obscene. It's over $1,000 a pill, which is just amazing. So it is very treatable. And as you, we can also know, many of our life choices can lead to exposure. So it's best if you prevent it. But it is, I can tell you, it is wonderful to know that most people, when they walk in your door, if they have hepatitis C, even if they have tried treatment previously and failed, or even if they have cirrhosis, we now have different medications to try that can really lead to a cure. In fact, those of you who have a phone that can take apps, there's an app you can download that will get updated anytime there's any change in the recommendations so you know exactly what to do, and that's very useful. And here is specifically at that time when they wrote this article, they were impressed with this particular uh, sofosposvir and ledipasvir. In fact, and this is just an all oral, so no shots. That was one of the big things people hated was taking shots for a whole year. And depending on the case, if the patient doesn't have cirrhosis and they haven't been treated before, with this particular medication, they can be cured in eight weeks. I mean, that's just amazing. In two months, they're done. And you check them again three months later, and if it's still virus-free, they're considered cured. But something we have to really make sure they understand is if they get re-exposed, they'll get it again. So this doesn't mean they're cured, and if they do something that exposes them to the virus again, they won't get it again. They will get it again. So I actually had a patient who went through all the shots back in the day and got cured, and then came back a couple years later, and she had it again. Oh, I met this guy, and he and I just start anyway. A lot of bad choices, so don't get re-exposed. So again, the hepatitis C treatment is evolving rapidly. A lot of companies are getting into the market, and it's now a very treatable disease for which I'm thankful if you can afford it. And that's the really big deal. Now here's, they were really reporting Statins in the liver. Statins, as you know, are the medications that can be used to lower the cholesterol. And they found liver injury in only 22 of over 1,000 patients. And one fatal case, and they were saying this, this is great news. That means we don't have to keep monitoring the liver. That's these guys' conclusion. My comment is, wait a minute. And this is, again, a copy from nutritionfacts.org slide. Here is a cardiologist. What he documents, for every 200 people who take a statin, one can develop diabetes. And every 100 people at risk for heart disease, one or two will avoid one by taking a statin. I mean, this is not the fix-all. That's not how you fix heart disease, is by throwing a pill at it. And I think that's where people get to thinking, well, if I just take a medication, I won't I then can keep doing the things that caused the problem in the first place. Uh, I just think that's just a bad idea. To me, it's somewhat analogous. I sometimes tell my patient, if, if you look at the sink, because I have a sink in every room for us to wash our hands, if you, if, if you and I come in here and there's water pouring off the sink, what's the first thing we reach for? Is it a mop? I turn off the water. Take care of the problem. Because the pharmaceutical companies are happy to sell you mops. Just buy the bucket load, but that's not the problem. So, and we all know about how statins can cause muscle injury and cause rhabdomyolysis, and you can have, you're basically peeing your muscles out. And for example, if you have some older patients who are somewhat weak in the first place and prone to falls if they are on 
statins, they may get weaker and even more prone to falls. And so that's not really the answer. And if you notice on that slide, one of those statins has caused death and they're still thinking that's great news. I'm thinking that's not good news. So who needs statin? And here's the conclusion from editorial. Only pure vegetarians don't need statins. Most of the rest of us do. And I'm thinking, huh, wait a minute. Shouldn't we tell them that basically you don't have to have the disease? I mean, that's where I love it. When I finish, I'm telling my patients, you know, listen to him. He made us. He knows what works. So we know diet and lifestyle will lower cholesterol levels. And what are the side effects of following that type of diet? The side effects is it fixes all sorts of other things. I mean, we've, I've already mentioned that, and I go over that with the patients, you know, and tell them, you know, if you do that, that's what really helps. Then they made a point about diverticulitis, and they're saying it's being treated less aggressively with antibiotics or surgical intervention. In fact, just today, I got a phone call from a, my office about a patient who had some concerns because she feels like she may be getting about a diverticulitis and she's pregnant. And her GYN doesn't want her to take an antibiotic. I'm saying, well, I'm not going to prescribe one if, you're, if you're OB, I'm sorry, your OB doctor is going to give it to you. I'm not going to be the one to give it to you. Let me point you more toward the less aggressive treatment, which is take away some of the causes of it in the first place. Eat the foods that grew from the earth. Here's kind of just some slides to show you what look like. This is from an endoscopic view. This obviously is after it's been removed from the body, so this person no longer has that particular part of the bowel. That's not what you want. Here's one actually that perforated, so a surgeon would have seen this. This is, this here's a piece of stool stuck in there, and people say, oh, that means if I have diverticula, I can't have seeds anywhere. Well, it turns out that's not correct information. What you want to avoid is food that doesn't have fiber. That's what gets stuck in there. It's not the seeds, so eat food with plenty of fiber. That's a real revelation. People are really happy to know they can eat their strawberries again. They somehow want to peel their strawberries. So here's the article that they were talking about. And how do you treat it? A whole food plant-based diet will prevent and treat this disease so you don't have to do all these other interventions. Now, proton pump inhibitors. This is actually big business. This is a medication, as you well know, that is used by people to suppress acid. And the point they're making with this is, did you know they did a study in the US and Canada and United Kingdom that people that take it, according to this particular study, didn't have increased pneumonia? This is really good news. That's according to them. And I'm thinking, we're doing the wrong thing here. Why don't we treat why it happened in the first place? So basically, they've discovered that high dietary fats associated with increased reflux, whereas a high fiber diet decreases the risk. So here is an article that is actually saying it's common here in the West, but it's getting more and more common in Korea because they're starting to eat like we do, and it has all sorts of complications. Chronic reflux can lead to bleeding, to narrowing, which is, gets food stuck, to the Barrett's, which we've talked about, and even cancer. And the main treatment is the proton pump inhibitor, diomeprazole, esomeprazole, and zoprazole, all those medications. And these numbers are in billions, okay? So we're talking big money. So they have a real interest. In fact, these are the pharmaceutical reps that love to show up in the office. And I try to smile with, at them and say, yes, you have a very good medication. Then I do my best to have no one take it. <laughs> so, but basically, as you well know, there's many adverse reactions to long-term. You're not supposed to be on these medications, even according to their studies, for more than just a few weeks. And people are on it for years. That's not good, by the way. Do you know acid's supposed to be there? God put it there for a reason, because what we eat isn't sterile. Did you know that? So we're supposed to help sterilize it. So what are some of the long-term problems according to this article? They've talked about B12 deficiency, iron deficiency, the pneumonia. That's what this article that uh, was talked here, that was less of a problem. Further infections down the gut, fractures, hypergastronemia. And so we want to find a correctable risk factor. And what are the correctable risk factors? Well, 
we already know it's better not to be overweight. Yeah, that's a good idea. Metabolic syndrome, we know about what that is. That's the idea of having the diabetes and high cholesterol and obesity and insulin resistance and all that type of thing. And should avoid alcohol and tobacco, yes. But what about diet? So that's what this study is all about. So they found that high dietary fat was associated with increased uh, reflux, whereas high fiber decreases the reflux. So this is looking at diet. Now, this is looking at, as you increase the fat, what happens lower esophageal sphincter? Lower esophageal sphincter is the muscle lower in the esophagus that once you swallow it opens, let things through, it closes off so things don't come sloshing back up. But if there's a lot of fat in there, it tends to open up. So that's where if you're eating a lot of fat, then you have more of the drop in lower esophageal sphincter, whereas high fiber, you didn't have that happen. Well, how about meat? Well, they found that meat and high fat, you'd have more cancer of the um, esophageal gastric junction, whereas you didn't have that with fruit, vegetables, because they had a lot of antioxidants in them. And you can choose your cancer. If you want it in the esophagus, you eat red meat. If you want it more in the stomach, you eat poultry. But bad choice. I just don't like that particular choice. Um, now, they call them meat alternatives. What are meat alternatives? Well, beans and nuts. You didn't have as much of the cancer. That's what they found here. We kind of knew all this, don't we? Now, how about food supplements? There's an inverse relationship between fruits, vegetables, and antioxidants with getting Barrett's esophagus, which we talked about earlier. But if you just take supplements and vitamins, it doesn't reduce it. I'm back to the idea of God's smarter than I am. If we decide, well, I'm going to take something from these things and make a pill out of it, have we improved on things? God's smarter than we are. If we just remember that concept, it really helps. Just save your money. I tell people my favorite pharmacy is the farmer's market. That's where you go to get your medicine. Eat the foods that grew from the earth. Again, here's another one talking about eggs and causing reflux. Here's, again, talking about eggs and cholecystokinin, which causes lower soft, the uh, lower esophageal sphincter to relax and you have more reflux. So getting back to the idea of reflux and the vegetarian diet, non-vegetarian diet was associated with reflux, but vegetarian diets had a protective effect. So that's something that I think we can take home and teach our patients. Just eat the way we're designed to eat. We do have a maker. He made us. He knows what works. And guess what? If you do that, it has some side effects. So what are our side effects? It lowers oxidative stress, reduces blood lipid levels, re less cardiovascular disease, diabetes. Oh, and by the way, it also can help decrease reflux. So that's a rundown of the top papers in GI according to those particular authors. I'm back to the idea I think God's smarter than we are. If we just listen to him, we already know the answer. Point people to him, and it is a package deal. And what I got to tell this lady that I didn't mention to you is I told her, do you know, that's not even the best part. You know what the best part of doing this? If you follow this, you'll have better health, but that's a side effect. It's a cool side effect. I happen to like that side effect a lot that you feel good, but that's a side effect. The whole point of this is actually so you'll feel good, so you have a clear mind, because you know that the God that made us actually wants to have a relationship with us? I mean, can you imagine he actually wants to spend eternity with us? I, I can't imagine spending eternity with myself, but he wants to have eternity with us. I mean, I think that's just remarkable. And not only that, he wants to offer us the gift of his son on the cross who paid the penalty for our sins so we can spend eternity with him. That's the whole point of all this. The feeling better is actually just a side effect. But she came back after we'd done all the tests. So I walk in the door and I asked her, how are you doing? She says, fine. I said, no, no, no. How are you doing? I mean, you know, pleasant. she's going to say, oh, you're fine. No, she means, no, really, I'm fine. She says, I've actually been doing what, you, what we talked about. 
she said, not completely, but a lot. I'm really doing most of it. And did you know, I feel better. I'm not sore in the morning. I, I have energy. I can make it through my shift. And even people in my work have commented on it. In fact, my one concern is the place I'm going to work at, because she worked in a place that takes care of mentally challenged people. They make some changes, and she may lose her job. And that's what most of her concern was. So I got to talk to her about where to take her cares to. Because basically, it's only God that can give you peace of mind no matter what happens to you. So we spent the rest of the time praising him. And then I glanced at her chart. I looked over and said, you know, I see you lost 15 pounds. She said, I did. I wasn't even trying to. I was just following what he said, and that's what happened. I happened to, I mean, to me, that's when I walk out of a room with interaction like that. I think, you know how God is just so cool? So how do you incorporate God into a patient encounter? And now, you don't always have as much time as I happen to have with this lady to spend that time. I try to take that time if I can, but you don't necessarily. But you never know how you're going to have an encounter. So basically, obviously, you want to listen to the patient. Listen to if they're open to it. Because not everyone are you going to have an interaction like that. Some people don't want that. But I have to tell you, with each patient encounter, as I end it, I will say one more thing. And they'll look at me, what? I like to pray with people. May I pray with you? Once in a while, you'll get turned down. But the vast majority of time, people appreciate it and want you to do that with them. And you never know. I'll tell you a situation just happened this week. I'm trying to keep some of these fresh. Just this past Saturday night, they had a little talent program in our school. And I wasn't on call, but they called me anyway from the ER because they had a lady there who came in with a hemoglobin of 6. That's kind of low. A few more details. She was well over 300 pounds. Diabetic, of course, you know, high cholesterol, diabetic, all, all American, you know, look. Um, on oxygen. And she's going to need to be brought in. And she says, well, I'd call the hospitalist, but we need to make sure GI is on board because we need to figure out what's going on. Okay, I'll take care of her. But she had a concern. I came in to see her, and her daughter was there. And she had a concern. She said, if some time back when I went under anesthesia, it took me days to wake up. I had to, was on the ventilator for a long time, so I'm scared to death of anesthesia. And I said, well, that's a valid concern. It really is. But we would probably, being aware of that, have anesthesia talk to you ahead of time to make sure that we find the right thing and I didn't tell her this, but sometimes we do what's called you're okay anesthesia. That means we tell them you're okay, you're okay, anyway. But we do what, what it takes. Um, but the point I'm making is I said, we'll, we'll try to do something, but you know what we really need to do? Do you mind if I pray with you about this? Because I understand you have a difficult situation. She said, yes, let's pray. And so she got transfused, and so Monday, all day Sunday and so forth, and anesthesia talked to her ahead of time, so she was okay. So we brought her down to do the endoscopy, and as she's coming in the room beforehand, I saw the anesthesia provider, and he said, you know, she's really fragile, but one thing we can do, we can pray, and God loves us, and he answers prayer. Do you know he answers prayer? And so she was being wheeled in, and as she's wheeled in, she opens her arms wide and says, before they put me under, I want Doc to pray for me. I said, well, I was going to do that anyway, because I pray with people before I do any procedure with them. But I said, yes, let's pray with you. So we prayed, and did you know? It went well, but what was interesting is she was bleeding, but as soon as I washed the blood off, you couldn't see a spot. She had what's called dilafoy. That's an artery that's near the surface that can open up and bleed, but then when it stops bleeding, it contracts as a muscle layer, and there's no ulcer there, so you can't find where she bled. Well, by God's grace, she happened to be bleeding right then, so we put a, injected it and then put a clip on it and took care of it. So afterwards, I went over to talk to her family. Now, this time it was her 
sister who was there. And so I told her everything went well because she was very, very anxious. And I got to pray with her about it. I said, she's doing well. And she says, oh, thank God. Do you know if people afterwards, and I've found this many cases, when I do a procedure with them, and I prayed with them beforehand, but afterwards I go talk to them. If they go, Doc, thank you for praying with me. You know what they're telling you? You want to pray again. So I say, may I pray with you again and thank God? Because many times we ask God, but we don't thank God enough. Let's stop and thank God. Can we do that together? And we do that. And that is meaningful. Had another lady just before I came down here who had severe pancreatitis. And so I was talking to her son afterwards and mentioned to her how severe things were and how how dangerous it was. She hadn't been to a doctor in years, and she had really to work on her. And he, she said, she was so mad at me, she felt, she, he, she said she was going to hit me if I kept talking to her, but she finally got pancreatitis, and it got intolerable, so she came in, turns out she's in renal failure. I mean, that's, she's a very fragile lady. And as we're talking, we're going, you know, she is fragile, we're going to keep a real close eye on her. And he said, yeah, but we do have a God who heals. And so right there in the hallway, I said, can we pray together about it? And so we stopped right there and had prayer together. But how do you bring it into, into uh, God into your patient encounter? You gotta, first of all, you gotta, remember we said you've got to have that in your life. You have to die daily. You have to ask him in. You have to ask him to serve. You have to immerse yourself in the information of how to live healthful living. Immerse yourself in it. Everything filter through. Look to God. And then you have something to share. And when you have something to share, you filter through it. And then you watch for opportunities. I remember I had, an oppor- I had a young man come in who was about 26. He had, you know, mod clothes on and spiky hair and, you know, just. And so he was unhappy because he had had some problems with his bowel pattern and passing some blood. So he's concerned. And so we elected to look in there and see what's going on to a colonoscopy. And I'm trying to think, how am I going to share with him anything to do with God? So I, we have electronic medical records where I work at. And in my experience, it slows me down. Maybe for you, it speeds you up. But for me, it slows me down. But I've decided, OK, since it slows me down, I'm going to do my note right there in the room. So in case they have any questions, they can talk to me while I'm doing it. I tell them, I'm not trying to ignore you. But if you have any questions, ask me. So I'm typing away. If I says, Doc, is there anything I can do now? My mom says, my diet's not so good. And I go, he asked, OK. So I went over the presentation like I did for that first lady, and at the end, he's kind of looking at me. And the question I like to ask them is, say, do you understand my prescription? Because you're getting a prescription. That's your prescription is to follow that. In fact, I had one lady, as I'm doing it with her husband, she says, he doesn't like that food. I say, he doesn't have to like it. That's my prescription. Just do it. Do it for three weeks, okay? Try it for three weeks and come back. But he's looking at me. I says, do you understand? He says, yes. I said, is it doable? Can you do it? He says, are you happy with how you're feeling? He says, no, I'm not. And so, basically, he says, I think I'll try it. In fact, I haven't, I've had multiple times where it's a couple, and the wife looks at him and says, he'll never do it. And I'm saying, what do you think? He says, I'm going to try it. He says, so? So I, have, so I told him, let me tell you one more story. Can I tell you one story about this? I told the patient this. He said, here's what happened to me one time. He said, do you know how you go to a place to put gas in your car? And when you're putting gas in your car, there might be another car on the other side putting gas in their car. You know what I'm talking about? He says, well, I went in, and I, put, I was putting gas in my car. And there was another guy putting gas in his car. And he glanced over, and I guess he recognized me. So he looks at me, and he comes over, and he starts doing this, patting his stomach. Then he looks at me and goes, you don't remember me, do you? I'm going, uh-oh, <laughs> help me. <laughs> you got to help me. He says, well, I was in your office a couple, three months ago, and we talked. And I'd gone over kind of what I told that first lady. And he said, I've been doing what we discussed. He said, I've lost 20 pounds. I'm off most of my medicines, and I'm feeling good. And do you know we spent the rest of the time praising God right there in the service station? <laughs> That is when being a doctor spent. And did you know they actually pay you? I was listening to a talk where someone said it really, you know, it builds your character when you knock on 100 doors and only two people want to talk to you. Do you know when your patients come in, you get to talk to them and they're paying you to do it? 
That's kind of nice. And you're giving them cutting edge medical advice. If you just look at that. So my final slide, I have all sorts of cases I could tell you about and how you get to talking. You just start talking to people about different things. Just listen to them, just listen to them. But my final slide, there's a few more. I, had, I started, but I want to start this slide. This is one of my favorite slides. Proverbs 3, 5 to 6 says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. So are we supposed to trust? But who? It's in the Lord. With, and just part-time do we trust him? All our heart. And lean on to your medical training. Is that what it's saying? No, what's it saying? Lean not on your own understanding. Remember, we filter everything through the truth, and what is truth is God. And in all your ways, who are we supposed to acknowledge? And who will direct us? He will. Let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, we thank you for your love and mercy. Thank you that you love us and that you showed us through your word and through the death of your son that you want us to live with you eternally and you want to give us methods that we can know that if we follow, there's a special blessing. And for that, we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.